Welcome to The 43%. I'm Claudia Reuter. This show forgets about the leaning in or leaning out debate and talks to successful women about their paths towards creating a life that includes both family and career. Our name is a nod to the fact that 43% of women leave the workforce when they have children. We all have our takes on why and what might be done to better support mothers who are grappling with work inside and outside of the home. In this show, though, we explore a wide range of experiences and ideas with a goal of simply shedding more light on what's possible. Which means that you're going to have a lot of, you know, young Gen Xers, millennials having to step out of the workforce to care for a parent. Of course, it's not like an employer is going to hold your position for you if you have to take time off for a year. That was today's guest, Cameron Huddleston. Cameron is the author of the book, Mom and Dad, We Need to Talk, How to Have Essential Conversations with Your Parents About Their Finances. She is also an award-winning journalist who has been writing about personal finance for more than 17 years. Her work has appeared in Kiplinger's Personal Finance Magazine, Business Insider, Chicago Tribune, MSN, Yahoo Finance, and many other personal finance publications. In our conversation, Cameron shared her own very personal experiences as a parent who also needed to step in to care for her own mother who is grappling with Alzheimer's disease and the decisions that led her to write her book. Hi, Cameron. Thanks so much for joining the 43% today. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, I'm super excited. I know we connected online a few months ago now, I guess at this point, and I'm super interested in in your work and and what you're um, writing about and what you're working on. And so I was wondering if you could kick off by introducing yourself and sharing a little bit about what your current day is like and what your what what what, what motivates you personally and professionally right now. Sure. So I am a financial journalist, personal finance. And I have a new book that's out. It's called Mom and Dad, We Need to Talk, How to Have Essential Conversations with Your Parents About Their Finances. And how old are your kids? My, I have a 14 going on 15-year-old, a 12 going on 13-year-old, and those are both daughters. And then I have a son who's seven. Oh, wow. So you are you are in the middle of everything right now. I'm sorry to hear about your mom and and what she's going through right now. When when was that diagnosed and how did how did you get engaged in in those conversations with her? So it was it's been actually more than it's been between 10 and 11 years since she was diagnosed with Mm -hmm. Alzheimer's disease. She was showing signs Mm -hmm. before then. And actually, we went to uh, two different doctors. The first one said, you know, gave her some tests and said, oh, no, she's okay. And I thought, no, 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 no. This is this is not correct. I know she's having problems. Fortunately, a friend of hers, a couple months later, after that first misdiagnosis, talked her into seeing another neurologist who did diagnose her with Alzheimer's disease. I, I had not really had any conversations with my mother about her finances, about if she ever needed long-term care, you know, how would we pay for it? What sort of care she would want? Once I saw that she was having issues with her memory, I knew I had to step in and get involved. The most important thing was getting to an attorney to draft legal documents that would allow me and my sister to get involved with her financial life, make healthcare decisions for her. The um, 
I think most people are familiar with what a will is. We had to update her will, which spells out who gets what when you die. And we also had to update her power of attorney document, which lets you name someone to make financial decisions for you if you no longer can. And her living will, which lets you name a healthcare proxy to make healthcare decisions for you and also spells out what sort of end of life medical care you want, basically whether you want to be on life support. And you have to be mentally competent to sign these documents. Fortunately, my mother, even though she was starting to have some memory issues when we went in and met with the attorney, she was still competent enough to sign those documents. And I'm so, I'm so grateful that she was because if, if she had not signed those documents, I would not have been able to step in and start helping her out with her finances. I wouldn't have had access to her bank accounts or anything like that. I wouldn't have been able to talk to her doctors about her health care. This is the alternative. If you don't have these documents in place and something happens to mom or dad, or, you know, if it's you too, um, you know, you, you have to go to court to get conservatorship or guardianship of your parent. Otherwise, you can't just go to the bank and say, you know, oh, my mom had a stroke. She's in the hospital and, and now she's getting rehabilitative care in a nursing home and I need to access her bank account to pay her bills. They're going to say, well, no, not unless you are her power of attorney. And so these, it's so important to talk to your parents about whether they have these documents while they are still relatively young and healthy. If you wait till an emergency strikes, it could be too late. Yeah, yeah, and and now you're helping others understand the the path, right? And so, can I ask, where is your dad in the picture with all of this? Or no, no. And so, I, my father, my mom, and father got divorced when I was in college. He got remarried, and really, I'm I'm the poster child for this book that I wrote about having conversations with your parents about your finances because. You know, not only did my mother develop Alzheimer's and I had to get involved with her finances, but my father passed away at the age of 61 in a second marriage and he did not have a will. And, and here's, here's the kicker. He was an attorney. So he, he knew he needed a will. I mean, this is, I mean, he would draft wills for clients yet he died without a will, which if you're in a second marriage, I mean, even if you're not in a second marriage, it can make things complicated, but certainly if you're in a second marriage and you've got, you know, a a stepchild and a second wife and kids from a first marriage, it makes things awkward. Certainly very awkward. Fortunately, we didn't, you know, end up in court battling out over who got what, but it, it was not easy for my sister and me. No, none of this sounds easy. And it, you know, I, when you said your dad didn't have a will, I totally understand that because there's something about creating these documents that sort of affirms that all these things ultimately happen, right? That, you know, that people die. And so there's some, some avoidance in not actually creating the documents, but because you, you've been in this situation and now you're doing this with your mom, but you know, there, there's the, the caregiver. It's interesting to think about the fact that you're essentially a single caregiver of your parent, right? You know, like some people are single caregivers of their children, but you're, it sounds like you're, you're in a position of really being the sole provider or caregiver for your mom as she's going through these devastating medical issues. And with that comes the, the responsibility, not just of physical caregiving or emotional caregiving, but it's also paperwork and financial support and all of those things that we sort of don't I don't know why we don't talk about them. Um, So how are you doing? How are you doing emotionally right now? You know, it really depends on the day. 
most most days I you know I do pretty well with this I, I guess the best way to say it is this added responsibility mm-hmm. of helping care for my mother like I said I'm so fortunate that she is in assisted living and getting that care she did live with me um, my family for a while we also had a, a paid caregiver too who was helping out you know I was you know, checking on her every morning, making sure she had breakfast, making sure she took her medicine. Every night I would either eat dinner with us or she would eat dinner. I would prepare meals for her. And it was, you know, by the end of the day when she was living with us, I was usually pretty tired, often stressed out after having to deal with her, my work and my kids. And I think the hardest thing was feeling like, I was not being the best mom I could be Mm. for my own kids because I had very little energy left to give to them at the end of the day. And and it was also hard because I did not feel like I was, I could be a daughter to my mother anymore. I was, it was almost like I was a parent to my mom and I hated being in that position. I really hated it. And so once we moved her into assisted living, because it was at the point where she really needed, you know, round the clock care in a secure facility. I got to be her daughter again, which was a nice thing. I could visit with her, just enjoy my time with her. At this point now, she no longer knows who I am. She still remembers she has a daughter named Cameron. But when I'm there, she doesn't know I'm that daughter. But she still seems to enjoy it when I'm there, when my kids are there. She's usually in a good mood. Um, as long as you don't make her do something she doesn't want to do. And that's when it gets really difficult. Those are the days that are bad when there's a health issue and she has to go to the doctor recently. Um, she had to get surgery. I had to take her to the hospital. And that was incredibly difficult because my poor mother had no idea what was going on. And in the hospital being poked and prodded and, and that was traumatic for me. I'm sure it was traumatic for her because she didn't know what was going on. But for me, having to watch that, it was just, it was an absolutely horrible position that I didn't want to have to be put into and incredibly stressful. But most days, shifting money around in accounts and making sure the bills get paid for assisted living and making sure prescriptions are filled and that sort of thing. Um, and I've got a lot set up on auto payments to make things easier and the and the prescriptions are delivered directly to her facility. Those sort of you know simple things that I've done to make things a little bit easier help out. Um, and so most of the time it's just I can go visit with her, be her daughters. It's those occasional instances when things get a little bit tougher. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's that, that sounds really tough. Um, anyone dealing with a a medical situation, but then on top of that, not being aware that they're not aware of what's happening, um, adds obviously another layer. Do you have a partner or anybody who's, um, supporting you, you know, emotionally and, you know, as a parent at this point as well, or. I do. I am married. Um, and my husband has been incredibly helpful. Um, you know, wonderful with my mother, you know, back in the early days of her diagnosis when she was still living in her house, you know, he was helping her take care of her house, you know, you know, anytime they needed repairs, mowing the lawn for her. He's, I mean, he's gone with me to take her to doctor's appointments. I mean, he's been incredibly supportive, which is, which has been a huge help. I do have a sister, but she lives many states away. And so that's why I'm the one who's handling the caregiving responsibilities. But, you know, she's always been 
very supportive and helpful too. I know sometimes in some families, it, it can be unfortunate when siblings disagree over what sort of care the parents should be getting or how any funds should be spent. Fortunately, I have not had any issues like that. My sister has been nothing but supportive of me and, you know, I can get on the phone and if I need to complain about something to her, she's more than willing to listen. That's that's great. And then so at what point in this journey did you start working on this book? Because to me this is it's always so inspiring when I hear of people who are confronting and dealing with their own world and their own day and their own dreams and then take it upon themselves to try to share more with others so that their experiences can be easier. What, you know, at what point did you say, okay, I'm, I've got a book in me and it's about this topic? A couple of years ago, I was actually being interviewed for a podcast with the credit reporting agency Experian. And we were talking about an article I'd written about how to be prepared for the what ifs in life and started talking about my mother and her situation and how I had gotten involved with her finances. And the both of the men who were interviewing me, one was a little bit long, younger, one was a little bit older. They wanted to know more. Uh, they, you know, they were saying, well, you know, I think I need to talk to my parents about this. What do I need to find out? What sort of information do I need to gather? How do I even start the conversation? And then after the interview, the person who was recording it came up to me and said, I need to have this conversation with my parents, but I don't know how to do it. And my friends had also been coming to me because I was 35 when my mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. She was 65. At that time, mm -hmm. none of my friends were going through anything like this. And so I had no one to go to for help. A couple years down the road, when my friends were older, their parents were older and started to run into some of the issues that my mom had already been experiencing, they started coming to me because I had already been going through it. And that's, that's when I realized, I thought, you know, people shouldn't have to go through this alone. I know these mm. conversations can seem really difficult. People don't know how to start the conversation because a lot of people think money's taboo, especially if it comes to talking to your parents about their finances. And I realized through what I had learned in dealing with my mom and because of my access as a financial journalist to lots of experts in the field, financial planners, financial psychologists, elder care experts, that I could create a book, a guide basically that would help people have these conversations, gather information that they needed, understand what sort of legal documents their parents should have, how to protect them from things like scams, what to do if your parents are reluctant to talk. And so basically realizing that I had an experience that could benefit others is what drove me to write this book. And so how, as you were writing the book, how, how were you thinking about your own family and your own kids? Like, do you have things you're already thinking about putting in place with them or are they too young? Like at what point, where, where in your studies is the, the ideal moment for people to start thinking this way? So I, my kids have had to listen and learn about money from the time they were old enough to talk because not only am I a financial journalist, my husband is an economist, he teaches economics. And so money is a conversation that we're not afraid to discuss in our house. And so my kids don't think of it as taboo at all. It's funny, one day my middle child came up to me just out of the blue and said, mom, why, why do people think money is a bad thing to talk about? Because in our house, it never has been. And so, you know, I've, we have plenty of things in place already. We, we've we gone through actually power of attorney, living will drafted twice. Actually, we had to make some changes. So we did it once. We did it again. And um, 
planning ahead and thinking about how if we ever need long-term care, you know, how we would pay for it, putting things in place. And we've told our kids, you know, we don't ever want to be a burden on you. We want to make sure we're saving enough for retirement, that we can pay for our health care, our long-term care if we ever need it. We don't want you to have to take on that burden of taking care of us. We're trying to put things mm-hmm. in place so you won't have to do that. Of course, you know, if if I end up in a situation like my mother did, I would hope that my kids would be, you know, kind enough to step in and at least make sure the bills get paid if my husband's no longer around. But I'm not, you know, I don't want them to have to, you know, leave their jobs to have to care for me, move me into their house. I don't want them to have to do that um, just because it is a huge burden. And I just don't think people realize if, you know, I think a lot of people would say, well, of course, if my parents need their help, I'm going to help them. If they need me to be their caregiver and there's no other way to afford it or, you know, even if there is a way to afford it, I'll be happy to step in. But I don't think people realize how demanding of a job that is. It can be a full-time job. And, you know, if your parent is in a situation like my mom where there's dementia, you you have to do everything. It gets to a point where the the, the parent, the adult can no longer do anything for himself or herself. And so you Mm -hmm. have to do absolutely everything. And that's, you know, that's very difficult. My mother usually is pretty easygoing, but, you know, like I said, when she's in a situation and isn't happy about it, she'll let you know very well. But there are plenty of people I've seen in the facilities where she's been who become very angry, combative. And so it's, it's incredibly difficult. And I, you know, I encourage people in this book that I've written to you know, at least find out if you if your parents have these estate planning documents, the legal documents that are so important, and to discuss with them about long term care if they if they ever need it, what sort of care they would want, how they would pay for it. Because I want people to realize it is expensive, it is difficult, and if you can come up with a plan to make it easier for both you and your parents, it's going to benefit you both going forward. While we're on the subject of money, let's talk about strategic financial choices for yourself and your body. With frequent sales, deals, and rewards, Beta Brand Styles can be an affordable way to invest in feeling and looking your best. Their products also make financial sense in that they are very high quality and durable. One of their most popular products and a personal favorite of mine is their dress pant yoga pant made with stretch performance knitting meant to last a very long time, so you don't need to splurge and buy several pairs over and over again. Not only that, they're wrinkle resistant and machine washable, so you don't have to worry about exorbitant dry cleaning bills. Spend the money once and reap the benefits of one of the most versatile and comfortable work pants of your life. In the midst of worrying about finances and everything else on your plate, feel confident in spending your hard-earned money on Beta Brand's high-performing, reliable clothing. So, to get a pair of your own, visit betabrand.com 43% and get 20% off today. Millions of women agree that these are the most comfortable pants you'll ever wear, period. So go to betabrand.com, that's B-E-T-A-B-R-A-N-D.com slash 43-P-E-R-C-E-N-T to get 20% off your dress pant yoga pants today. 
especially this, the new generation coming up that seems to be so burdened with college loans. It's hard for people in, I feel like the younger you are, the harder it is to think about the future. I mean, now that I'm in my forties and then, so really you feel like your job in many ways prepared you for your life experience that you're having right now, which is so interesting because sometimes people talk about how their life experience really prepared them for their job. But in many ways, it sounds like the job you had actually set you up to be in a position to deal with the situation that you have in front of you right now too. I mean, you're, I think we're similar, similar in age and growing up in the eighties as kids with TV and all sorts of commercials thrown our way, right? What, um, what impact do you think just the consumer society we live in then impacts our, like, why do you think we're encouraged to, I feel like we're bombarded with imagery on on buying new things, on what's next, on you know where you can spend your money, but very little education to your point on how we save our money or how we can prepare for the future. Why? Wh- where do you think that comes from? I think in large part it comes from the fact that our economy is based so heavily on consumer spending. Mm -hmm. And so, (laughs) you know, companies, they want to succeed. So they're spending a lot of money into, you know, putting these images out there of how great life can be if you have a new car, if you have a bigger house, if you have nice clothes. And I certainly got that message from my father, who was very concerned about appearances and always had a nice car. And, and I, I struggle with this. This is something that I am trying to, you know, get past this, this idea, this feeling that I have to, basically the idea of keeping up with the Joneses or, you know, buying things to impress with other people, because it was something that I saw from a young age. And, and I realized this and, you know, trying to catch myself when I feel like there's something I want, not because I really want it, but because someone else has it. And I'm teaching my kids this, that just because someone else has something, you don't have to have it. And my daughters have really gotten that message. They're very, my oldest is a natural saver. My middle child is kind of in between spender and saver. And I've, I've worked with her a lot on, you know, realizing you don't have to have everything that your friends have. And they're pretty good. They don't ask for a lot. Now, my son, he's a challenge. He he wants everything his friends have. So-and-so has this. I need this. He's a natural spender. He loves to just accumulate stuff. So I had my work cut out with him. But seeing, you know, what I was, what I saw growing up and and realizing that it wasn't necessarily a healthy way to approach money, this let's spend to have what other people have and to impress people. And so I'm trying to teach my kids the opposite. Be grateful for what you have. You don't need everything your friends have. You have a lot. You don't have to have everything. But I I just putting myself back in that time period, I, I have to imagine it's hard. I feel fortunate though that I kind of got into their heads from a young age <laughs> that they don't need to worry about keeping up with people. And they're pretty good. Like I don't, they ask for a lot less than my son does. Mm. They, 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 they rarely come to me saying, I really need this. I mean, my seven-year-old has already said, I need a phone, mom. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I need an Apple Watch, mom. And I'm like, what, what are you talking about? You were seven years old. You do not need a phone. You do not need an Apple Watch. No, no way. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. And it is crazy because my kids are just a little bit past there because my, my kids are 16 and 14. And so when they were that age, I I mean, what was the iPhone came out? What in 07? So they were, it wasn't, it wasn't 
it wasn't normal yet to have it with young kids at that point. So yeah, I mean, you can see toddlers now swiping away on their phone, which is really interesting. Um, but, uh, you know, can I ask, you mentioned that your hometown, where did you grow up? In Bowling Green, Kentucky, which is actually where I live now. We, we moved back here um, because my husband got a teaching job at the university, at Western Kentucky University, and I never, ever thought I was going to move back home. But I am glad that we did because I was actually living across the street from my mom for a while, and that allowed me to notice her mental decline. Like if I had been living far away, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have seen the signs soon enough. I wouldn't have been able to get her in to meet with an attorney to update her legal documents. I wouldn't have been able to step in and start helping her out if I had been somewhere else. So I'm grateful that things turned out the way they did. That's that's great to know. And so when you so you grew up in this environment with this blend of consumerism and uh, keeping up with the Joneses, and and now you're you're you've written this book on um, you know how to have difficult conversations. Can you t- t- just re- uh, restate the title of your book again? It is Mom and Dad. We need to talk how to have essential conversations with your parents about their finances. You know, and I will point out because I, I hear some people saying, "Well, my parents' finances are none of my business." You know, it would be rude for me mm-hmm. to ask, and I want people to realize that. Maybe your parents' finances are none of your business now, but there could come a time when they will be your business because they need your help. They need your help as a caregiver, whether they haven't prepared well enough for their own retirements and they're going to need some financial support or everyone dies. And if your parents die without a will, it's going to fall on you and your siblings to deal with everything they've left behind. And that I mean, that's a that's hard enough mm-hmm. if there is a will or if there's a living trust in place to make things easier. But without those legal documents, it can be a nightmare. I mean, I think everyone probably knows someone who's lost a parent without a will. And there can be all sorts of family fighting, court battles, and it's the cost yeah. falls on you at that point. And so what is what is your view on is it appropriate as a parent to share with your kids how much you make? Like I I've as my kids are getting older, I haven't done that yet, but sometimes we've had conversations like, you know, is it important for them to know or I grew up in a house where people always just told me, you don't need to worry about it. You're taken care of. We won't, you know, you don't need to know the details. Um and so sometimes now as an, as the parent, as the adult, I I wonder if it is appropriate or if I should start to, you know, just put it out in black and white. Like, this is how much we make. This is how it works. This is what's coming. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I don't actually know. So <laughs> <laughs> I do. I think it depends. I think it really varies from family to family and your level of comfort mm-hmm. in disclosing that information and whether you can trust your kids with this information. We don't tell our kids like a dollar amount of what we make, but we let them know, you know, we give them an idea of how much things cost. You know, we'll, we'll tell them, you know, our, we pay this much, you know, every month for our mortgage and, you know, our electricity bills cost this much and this is, and they go grocery shopping with me. So they have a really good idea of how much we're paying for our food every week. And so we let them know that sort of thing. And we let them know, you know, your dad and I are, are making enough money that we can pay our bills and that we can afford to go on trips. But 
we can't afford to get you everything that mm-hmm. you want. And, and we let them know what our priorities are. You know, we tell them our priorities are providing experiences for you, taking you on trips, letting you see new things. Our priority is not for you to have the latest model of the iPhone. It's not to have every article of clothing be an expensive brand name piece of clothing. We let them know this. You tell them, I trust you to to keep this quiet. This is only something our family discusses. You don't share this information with other people. Got it. And you know, there's a lot of, there's always a lot of talk, it seems, in the in the press and in different publications and with different politicians on what to what we should as a culture expect or not expect from corporations in terms of early child care and how in and leave for new moms and new dads, right? Um, what are your thoughts on on caregiving, you know, for for adults, for parents and and where you see the line with corporations and what you think should or could be provided but that maybe isn't today. Oh gosh. I I really think there's going to be a big problem going forward as you know our one of our largest generations ages the baby boomers and they aren't prepared for retirement they aren't prepared for long-term care needs because as people are living longer they have a greater chance of needing long-term care and if they don't have long-term care insurance to pay for it and most people don't then medicare does not pay for long-term care Medicaid will, but Medicare does not, they're going to need most likely help from their children, which means that you're going to have a lot of, you know, young Gen Xers, millennials having to step out of the workforce to Mm. care for a parent. Of course, you know, you family leave act, you know, you can take some time off, but it's not like an employer is going to hold your position for you if you have to take time off for a year to care for a parent. It's it's going, I really see that it's going to put a strain on our economy overall. I really think that there will be a lot of people, able-bodied adults who are going to have to leave the workforce to care for aging parents because they just don't have the funds to pay for this care. And it's so expensive. Long-term care is so expensive. It's on average, it's about 4,000 a month for assisted living and in-home care for nursing home. It's twice that much. And I think that is one of the, the th- either people shelf it and don't want to think about it, how much it costs, or we do make assumptions that certain programs pay for all this stuff, but you're saying that they don't. That No, Medicare will not pay for your long-term care. So what does Medicare pay for? It pays for, like the, the very basic Medicare will pay for your hospital care, and then you can get you know, supplemental Medicare policies, or you can get what my mother has is Medicare Advantage. It is basic Medicare plus a an additional policy through a private insurer. And that covers her doctor's visits, her prescription drug cost. And so it pays for your basic medical care, not care in an assisted living facility, it will cover brief stays in a nursing home if, for example, you have a stroke and you have to go for rehabilitation in a nursing facility for a short period of time, but it's not going to pay for dementia care or if you have some sort of physical disability that requires you to be in assisted living, it will not pay for that. Medicaid will, but Medicaid does not pay for the type of care my mom gets in an assisted living facility. It will pay for 
care in the home in some situations and nursing home care, but it has to be a Medicaid approved facility. And you have to have very few assets to qualify for Medicaid and very limited income. So, Mm. you know, basically reserved for lower income adults who need that sort of care. So the people who are stuck in the middle, not really wealthy, don't, you know, don't have the long-term care insurance, don't have the savings, those people are really going to be hurting because they don't qualify for Medicaid, but they don't have the funds to pay for that care. You know, and it's it's interesting because we talk about the middle class squeeze and it seems like the same thing happening at both stages of life because this is also the same challenge that people have to, to a lesser extent, though, in early childhood is if you make less than a certain amount, you qualify for certain federally fu- subsidized child care programs. And certainly if you you're you know, your family's doing great and you're affluent, this is all easy. But when you're at that, you know, six figure, low six figure amount early in your career or high, you know, high 70, whatever the number is, oftentimes childcare will eat up a huge chunk of your take-home pay. And there's no, there's nothing to support you or help you on that path. Um, And it sounds like the same thing that's hitting the middle class at that younger part of their career is the same thing that hits you at the older, you know, your older years as well. Certainly. And it's, I mean, it's not fair. I mean, there's, there's no other way to describe it. It's, it's not fair. You're, you're out there working, you've got your job, but you're having to spend so much of your money to, to provide care for your children. And then down the road to provide care for your parents. It's, it's certainly difficult. If you could go back in time or as you're thinking about your experience right now, which sounds like, you know, you do have it under control, though, as difficult as it is, you know, you've got your book out and you've, you know, you've got a great marriage and three kids. What advice would you give your younger self or a younger person who's trying to think about all the different things that go into really being a whole person in today's world of work and home and balancing all these things? I would say educate yourself. If you want to succeed, and, and by succeed, I don't necessarily mean become CEO of a company and have a really big salary. I mean, get by without financial worries. If you want to succeed, you need to educate yourself. And there are so many free sources out there. There are so many websites that are geared toward providing personal finance information. You can go to the library and get books you know, I know it's fun to, you know, kick back on the beach or on the weekend on the couch with a, you know, a good piece of fiction, but carve out time to read some books that are going to help you succeed financially, take control of your finances. There, there are just so many resources out there. And the more you educate yourself, the better prepared you will be. Because like I said earlier, we're not taught these things in school. We're not taught that, you know, racking up a lot of credit card debt is a bad thing because you're going to end up paying a lot more over time. We're not taught, you know, even the dangers of student loans. We're not taught that someday our parents might rely on us. And that means we might have to step out of the workforce to care of them. So the more you read and learn about these things, the better prepared you will be. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today um, to to share your story and, and share some insights and information about your book and uh, just really appreciate it. Thank you. That's it for this time, but we'll be back next week for another conversation with another inspiring woman. If you could take just a minute to rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening, I'd really appreciate it. 
Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to hear these stories. The 43% is produced by me, Claudia Reuter, Cynthia Pimentel, and the whole team at Wonder Media Network. Our executive producer is Jenny Kaplan, and our music is from Martin Wisenberg. You can find The 43% wherever you listen to podcasts and on our website at the43percent.com. Thanks again for listening and have an awesome week. Before you go, I just wanted to take a moment to shout out another podcast I'm listening to called Committed. Committed just wrapped up season two with best-selling author and award-winning journalist Joe Piazza. Committed is the conversation you've always wanted to have about marriage and love, but were afraid to start. The truth is that love isn't always patient and kind. Sometimes love is messy. Sometimes love is wonderful and confusing and magical and infuriating, often in the same day. These are the extraordinary stories of ordinary couples talking about how they navigate the good, the bad, the terrifying, the wonderful, and the life-changing. If you love This American Life and Modern Love, you'll adore Committed. It doesn't matter if you're married, divorced, single, or celibate. These stories will renew your faith in love and in other human beings. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.